This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jillian Hanley, who is an Associate Professor in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology in the Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And the topic of this uh, discussion is going to be the publication in uh, um, JAMA, uh, JAMA Network, uh, and is the title Open Outcomes from uh, Opportunistic Salpingectomy for Ovarian Cancer Prevention. So Jillian, thank you so much for, uh, for this uh, opportunity to speak with you about the manuscript. Congratulations again for this publication, and I'm sure the tremendous amount of work that you and your team have put into this. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to, to talk about my favorite topic. Anytime, I'll, I'll come talk about opportunistic self-injectomy any day. <laughs> that, that, that's perfect. So we, uh, we have lots of questions and hopefully we'll get through um, all of them. Um, but obviously a really very important topic. Um, and I wanted to start by discussing what is an opportunistic self-injectomy and why is this relevant topic for, for us to evaluate? Yeah, so an opportunistic salpingectomy refers to the removal of the fallopian tubes during a hysterectomy um, with ovarian conservation um, and also removal of fallopian tubes for tubal sterilization rather than um, ligating, which was previously done. And this recommendation is made um, because there was increasing evidence that the fallopian tube was the tissue of origin for many high-grade serous cancers. So the thinking was if we can remove tubes at the time of these other surgeries, so that's the reason we call it opportunistic because we're taking advantage of an opportunity um, to remove tubes um, during these other gynecologic procedures in order to prevent future ovarian cancers. And this is really designed to be done in people at low general population level risk for ovarian cancer. So this is not a recommendation for um, BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation carriers or people who are at genetically increased risk. Of course, prevention in those populations is um, includes removal of ovaries as well. Um, our, our BSO is still the recommended prevention for people at genetically increased risk. But this is really to prevent the 80% of high-grade serous cancers that arise in people with no known genetically increased risk. So a primary prevention strategy for the entire population. Yeah, that's great that you highlighted it is actually for the general population rather mm -hmm. than for a select group of patients. So I wanted to ask you that the, the next question is often been a topic of discussions. We actually have had podcasts about this uh, that often is a, a, a topic of debate for many pathologists is what, what data do we have to support that ovarian cancer really arises from the fallopian tube rather than the ovary? Yeah, I think there's quite a bit of data now, um, you know, beginning back in, you know, the early 2000s, there was recognition of stick lesions in people with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations um, at the time of our RBSO. So when um, 
pathologists went looking for these stick lesions in this higher risk population, they really were finding them um, much more often than um, they would have otherwise expected. And of course, they shared um, many of the same genomics as later cancers that had developed. So I think there was there's now quite a bit of support. Obviously, those early data then resulted in the CFIM protocol, which was to be very careful about how we looked for sticks in fallopian tubes of people with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. And once the CFIM protocol was instituted, then we really began to find many more of these stick lesions in that population. Um, and it is an area of active debate. I, I think it's, we don't know yet um, how many high-grade serous cancers originate in the fallopian tube versus the ovarian surface epithelium. We still don't have those data. Um, so I think that's an area of active research. Our team, we're looking into that um, as well because you know, it's important to understand if there are other ways of preventing some, some of these other cancers that arise somewhere other than the fallopian tube. So, um, you know, I think that that's, that's an area of active study still, but many appear to originate in the fallopian tube epithelium based on um, all of the data that have been um, accumulated over the years, largely from people with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. It's also important to note that when you look at controls, um, so people who are having benign gynecologic procedures and have no increased risk, the stick lesions are rarely to never present. So it really does, does provide more confidence that those are the, um, the first um, source of that ovarian cancer. Yeah. So when, when you were getting together with your team and saying, well, what do we put as like the primary objective of this study? Obviously an important undertaking. What was that primary objective? We really wanted to provide the first prospective evidence around whether or not people who had undergone opportunistic salpingectomy were at decreased risk for high-grade serous ovarian cancers, because there's been some historic studies um, that have looked, you know, gone back and looked at um, data from the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and said, do people who have one or zero fallopian tubes have a lower risk for ovarian cancer? And those studies have supported a risk reduction, but it's quite different to undergo a salpingectomy for another indication, you know, common indications historically for salpingectomy were ectopic pregnancies, um, hydrosalpings, you know, those, so they were quite rare. Um, they didn't happen often. And we believe that a prophylactic salpingectomy is likely to be more protective because the surgeon is really careful about removing the entire fimbriated end of the fallopian tube um, because the purpose is prophylaxis. So we think prospective evidence is going to be much more informative in, in terms of how risk, how much risk we can reduce mm -hmm. um, than that historic evidence was, even though the historic evidence was, was great and did suggest, you know, about a 60% reduction in risk, we think it could potentially be even better. So that's what we wanted to do. But we did understand at the time that we were a bit early. <laughs> Our population is, you know, quite young and um, quite small. So the population of British Columbia is only 5 million people. Um, 
but so we did so we we um just wanted to see if we could see a signal of an effect that's great and uh, you mentioned previously that this was a, a concept that applied basically to everybody the general population but in your study what were the inclusion criteria to get into the study, um, we only required that you had undergone one of the surgeries of interest. So um, we had everybody who had undergone an opportunistic salpingectomy in British Columbia between 2008 and 2017. And we also had control surgeries to compare to. So those are people who had hysterectomy alone. So their fallopian tubes were left in situ and people who had had tubal ligation rather than opportunistic salpingectomy for tubal sterilization. So we included all of those people because this is population-based data. So we're able to see at the population level anytime somebody undergoes one of these surgeries and that's how they got into our study. Um, for exclusion criteria, we excluded people who had a, an ovarian cancer diagnosed within six months of that surgery date, as that's almost certainly, you know, that cancer was caught at the time of that surgery. Um, so we excluded those people. And that's about it. We, we really wanted it to be population-based, real-world data. Um, so we didn't apply a lot of criteria. Great. So some of these questions that I'll pose to you are, come from our fellows in the journal. Uh, this one is from uh, Catherine Hicks-Curran. She's at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And she wants to learn a little bit more about the statistical design. Um, she was asking, can you please talk a little bit more about statistical analyses and the process of designing it? Uh, she says, did the authors anticipate low numbers of the outcome that a more traditional statistical comparison would not be feasible, or did they need to adjust the approach as they proceeded? Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? We did anticipate that the numbers would be low. We do have plans for future research um, where we are going to try to access also another Canadian population data from another Canadian province of Ontario, which is a much larger population, and combine that with British Columbia so that we can do those Cox proportional hazard models where we can control for confounders and do all of that. So we absolutely are moving forward um, with you know, the more sophisticated statistical approach. But I think what was actually really interesting about this piece is that you know, even though the numbers are small, there hasn't been a lot of time, it's still a very young cohort, we can see this effect already. We see this signal really clearly in that the group of people who've had opportunistic salpingectomy, there was not a single case of high-grade serous cancer in that group. And certainly we would have expected to see more than zero. Right. Um, so I, I think that's the reason that we pushed ahead, even with the smaller numbers, is because we knew that, you know, practitioners want this evidence. They're asking to understand this better. They want to know how to counsel their patients. Um, and we really wanted to show this preliminary signal of effectiveness. Um, so we went ahead with this much more simple statistical analysis, which is really just a comparison of um, expected to observed cancers. Uh, but we can see this significant difference in high-grade serous cancers between the opportunistic salpingectomy group um, 
they're much fewer than we would have expected to see if they were rising at the same rate as they arose in the control groups. So this analysis takes account of the shorter follow-up time that we have in the opportunistic salpingectomy group, because we're just saying, given this amount of time, if cancers were arising at the same rate as they were arising in the hysterectomy alone and the tubal ligation groups, how many would we have expected to see? And it's also age ad adjusted. So we did age adjust the rates as well. Um, and then we did a bunch of other things to sort of reassure ourselves that what we were seeing was in fact, um, you know, most likely a result of the opportunistic salpingectomy. So we also, um, looked at common risk and protective factors between the groups. So compared, um, compared common risk and protective factors for ovarian cancer between our opportunistic salpingectomy and control groups. And it turned out that the opportunistic salpingectomy group actually was at increased risk for ovarian cancer um, because they were older on average and they um, had had fewer live births and fewer pregnancies, which are both quite protective. There were no differences in um, past years of oral contraceptive pill use. Um, they had higher rates of endometriosis in the opportunistic salpingectomy group as well. So, you know, suggests that it's not those risk and protective factors that are driving the um, lower observed ovarian cancers in that group. And then we also compared just to see if there could potentially be unmeasured, unmeasured confounding that was driving this result. We compared we did the exact same analysis with breast and colorectal cancer. And what we found was that we had almost identical observed breast and colorectal cancers to what we would expect based on how they were arising in the control groups. So again, it just give, gave us a little bit more confidence that what we were seeing was, was likely a signal of effectiveness for opportunistic salpingectomy as an ovarian cancer prevention strategy. Great. Always so impressive when the investigator knows the statistical analyses and methodologies so well about their study. <laughs> so kudos to you for that. Um, before getting into the results, one of the other questions from our fellows was uh, Hussein el He's from uh, France. Um, and you mentioned previously the, the CFIM um, protocol for the pathology mm -hmm. examination. Um, CFIM stands for sectioning and extensively examining the fimbriated end and his, yeah. his comment is, I believe CFIM was introduced somewhere around 2012. The study goes back to 2008. So what mm -hmm. happened in, in that interval with regards to that analysis of the fallopian tubes? Yeah, so um, in terms of how, as I mentioned, in the early 2000s, we started to get this quite a bit of research um, suggesting that there were these stick lesions in fallopian tubes and, you know, more consensus around the fallopian tube as the likely tissue of origin for ovarian cancers. And just based on that evidence alone, so we have a really fantastic um, ovarian cancer research team here in British Columbia. And at that time, it was led by Dr. Diane Miller, who was a gynecologic oncologist who um, basically came up with the concept of opportunistic salpingectomy. <laughs> and she was really following this evidence around fallopian tube as a possible tissue of origin. And she was tired of watching women die of ovarian cancer. And she just wanted to do something. And she also thought, 
how many times am I seeing patients who have had previously had a hysterectomy or previously had a tubal ligation? And could this cancer have been prevented if that tube was removed at that time? So she recommended that people start removing fallopian tubes in British Columbia in 2010, there was a formal educational campaign. However, we go back to 2008 because of course the really early adopters like Diane and others working with her had started doing this even earlier. And, you know, we want to take advantage of the most follow-up time that we can possibly get. So that's why we used 2008 as our start date for this particular study, because that's when prophylactic opportunistic salpingectomy started to happen in BC. Of course, it dramatically increased since then. So there were a few people doing it in 2008. And now, you know, it's really standard of practice in British Columbia. Um, you know, we have remarkably high uptake. Uh, but yeah, we also at the very beginning of opportunistic salpingectomy in BC, we were doing CFAM on the tubes. And after hundreds of, you know, low risk women having CFAM sectioning on their tubes that we were not finding sick stick lesions because these are, you know, fairly young, low risk uh, women. So we don't do CFIM on all the tubes now at, that, that undergo opportunistic self-injectomy. It's regular pathology. Wow. What, what, what visionary. Uh, I know, I know she's amazing. Um, I know. So now, you know, getting on to the, to the results, I believe there were nearly 26,000 patients who underwent opportunistic uh, self-injectomy over 32,000 comparing uh, uh, hysterectomy alone or tubal ligation what would you say are like the main results? Uh, what are the highlights? What should everyone remember about this study? I mean, I think the thing that I love to say is that we had zero high-grade serous ovarian cancers in the opportunistic self-injectomy group, which, you know, is quite remarkable. We we had gone looking for high-grade serous cancers in the opportunistic salpingectomy group, thinking we were going to do a, a project to understand how these might be different from high-grade serous cancers that arise in people who have fallopian tubes. And we found, we couldn't find one. <laughs> there, there was nobody. So, you know, I think that's really, uh, it, it, you know, obviously we don't, we don't, we cannot say that opportunistic salpingectomy is going to be a hundred percent risk-reducing. We cannot make make that claim, but I think we were just really excited that, that it appears to be, um, you know, there's a very strong signal of effectiveness. Um, and so, you know, when we looked at, at the number that we would have expected in that group, we would have expected about five and a half cancers. So again, these are younger people, you know, um, so, but, zero was well below the low end of the 95th percent confidence interval. And looking at all epithelial ovarian cancers, again, we were the opportunistic salpingectomy group was significantly below the low end of the 95th confidence interval for all epithelial ovarian cancers. So, you know, I think the main finding is that this is really um, optimistic results in terms of um, opportunistic salpingectomy for ovarian cancer prevention. Yeah, I could imagine how excited you and your team were to see exactly that zero out of like yeah. 20 something thousand. So yeah. nothing proves a point more than that, actually. Um, yeah. So um, you spoke a little bit about uh, the stick lesions. And um, this question also from uh, Catherine, again, one of our fellows. 
um, she, she would like to just learn a little bit more about how do stick lesions play a role in carcinogenesis and specifically, were there any stick lesions found in any of the specimens that you looked at? Um, well, so not in the, so as I mentioned, you know, in the, um, first few hundreds, um, people who'd undergone opportunistic salpingectomy in BC, where we really did extensive CFIM sectioning, we didn't find anything. And then we decided that, you know, CFIM is time consuming and expensive. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, um, there was a decision to move to um, regular pathology for these people because the, the chances of finding a stick lesion is really low. Um, in terms of the role that sticks play in carcinogenesis, I think we still have a lot to learn, um, you know, about that. I think it's, it's quite convincing that this is the the first lesion, there seems to be some suggestion that P53 markers might be an even more, an even earlier indicator. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot that we still don't understand about the natural history of ovarian cancer. And the UK CTOX trial is a really good um, example of that. So, you know, in the UK CTOX trial, while they were able to shift stage diagnosis to a much earlier stage, they were unable to improve mortality. And so I, th I think for me, that made me think about all the things that we still have yet to learn around um, the natural history of ovarian cancer and and, and the role of stick lesions and how, how, how early a stick lesion can be present and how much time generally it takes to move from a stick lesion to a full-blown serous cancer. I think those are still some, some questions that we, that we need more answers on. Yeah. It's not my area. I work with data, not with fallopian tubes. I, I don't think it's anybody's <laughs> area because as you no. mentioned, you're, you're absolutely right. We really don't know what's the impact. And then also the question that comes up often is like, how do you do surveillance on these patients as well? So lots to still be uh, learned about uh, stick lesions. Um, this mm -hmm. next question is from uh, Jessica Stunt. She's from uh, MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. Um, she wants to know about age and, and the longevity of follow-up in these patients. And then she uh, makes a point about the fact that the, the mean age was 40 with a follow-up of seven mm -hmm. years. And she wonders, is this an insufficient time uh, to fully assess the incidence of ovarian cancer, given the generally older median age of this diagnosis? Um, perhaps she suggests that the data may be capturing the BRCA population. Is there a plan to look at patients for a longer period of time or an older population? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I think what's exciting about this study is that we saw such a strong signal with such a young cohort and not very much follow-up time. You know, we wouldn't necessarily have expected to have even seen the signal that we saw um, because of the reasons that Jessica mentions. Um, but, you know, it's there and it's, it's you know, statistically significant already at this point. So um, we're hopeful that's not just random chance um, mm -hmm. and that, you know, it is the signal that we think that that we're seeing. Um, but of course, we are continuing to follow up. So I've actually just within the last week received an updated data set. So to follow, um, to continue following, following into more recent years. Um, and 
yes, as these people age, we are going to be watching very closely to see what happens. And we will, as I mentioned, we have plans to um, work with another province in Canada in order to have a much larger sample size and be able to do the um, Cox proportional hazard models where we can really control for confounding. With respect to the BRCA population, we actually did have data on um, the known BRCA mutation carriers in our data set. And there were very few of them in either group because of course, the BRCA population gets RRBSO, which was not included in either our control group or our opportunistic salpingectomy group. So we had, I think, less than, it was about 0.1% of both groups um, were BRCA mutated people. And they're pro that's probably just reflective of individuals who choose a salpingectomy followed by delayed oophorectomy, mm -hmm. um, which is still not recommended recommended and that's why it's a it's a quite an infrequent choice and we do have other data from other research that we've done specifically on the BRCA mutated population in British Columbia that shows that our rates of uptake of our RBSO are very high. So our BRCA mutated people are, are getting our RBSOs and they're not really in these data. Okay. Of course, if they don't know they have a BRCA mutation then they could be in these data, but individuals who've been tested and um, found positive for a mutation are, they're very infrequent in our data set. Yeah, and one of the other questions that came up in, in our discussions was, um, if you had to say how many cases of ovarian or fallopian tube carcinoma are prevented by opportunistic infection, I mean, uh, opportunistic salpingectomy, uh, what is the drop in the percentage rate by performing an opportunistic salpingectomy? Do you have those kinds of numbers? Not yet. I mean, I wish that's really where we are, where we want to go. So because these, this study is preliminary and the numbers were small, you know, we really can't give that exact risk reduction estimate at this time. As I mentioned, there are the historical studies that are suggesting around 60% risk reduction in individuals who have um, no fallopian tubes. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure that is going to be where we land with prophylactic opportunistic salpingectomy. Um, and, uh, and we really do want to get that number because we know that that matters a lot for um, clinicians who are counseling their patients to give them a real sense of, of the benefit of undergoing um, opportunistic salpingectomy. So we are working on it and I will let you know as, <laughs> as soon as we have a number for you. <laughs> Great. Um, this next question comes from Hussein again, and uh, I think it's actually a, a, also a very good question in that uh, there are many, particularly when looking at younger women, that they're concerned with early menopause by doing a salpingectomy. Is there any validity to that argument? Uh, is there a higher incidence of early menopause in, in patients who undergo an opportunistic salpingectomy? Um, so, I mean, I think that it's a really great question. It is definitely um, something I think a lot about because, um, you know, ovarian cancer is quite rare. So if we are decreasing the age of onset of menopause by doing opportunistic salpingectomy, you know, in theory, it would 
be quite easy to undo all of the benefit that we had done um, by decreasing the age of onset of menopause. And so, you know, we've been following the research in this area really closely. Um, and, you know, there have been many studies looking at hormonal markers, um, particularly among people who've undergone hysterectomy with salpingectomy compared to hysterectomy alone. And they've all been very reassuring. Um, there's been some, some great Italian studies, one that followed out as far as five years mm -hmm. after salpingectomy and found no difference in, um, you know, AMH, FSH, those kind of hormonal markers. Um, there has not yet been a study that is actually powered on 12 months amenorrhea. Um, so that would be something that I would love to see um, just to feel, you know, 100% confident. Um, but we also have looked in our data for indicators that there's um, an earlier onset of age of menopause. So we looked at time to initiation on hormone replacement therapy and time to a first physician visit for a menopause related concern. And we found no difference between the opportunistic salpingectomy group and the relevant control group. So we can, we compared to hysterectomy alone for the hysterectomy patients. And we compared to tubal ligation for the tubal sterilization patients. And we found no suggestion of an earlier age of onset of menopause. Um, but I do think that, that this is probably the the last kind of safety question that we really need to nail everything else, you know, the perioperative complications, the minor complications, um, all of that stuff really looks very good. And there's quite a bit of safety evidence for that. Um, and there's no suggestion of an earlier age of onset of menopause, but being a very careful person. I would like to see a study that's powered to actually on study it. <laughs> yeah, 12 months amenorrhea yeah. rather than, you know, our study was surrogate markers and we're quite confident that they were picking up what we intended them to because we also included the hysterectomy with BSO group and we could see exactly what we expected to see in those Kaplan-Meier curves where those people were really, you know, obviously initiating on HRT and seeing their physicians for menopause related concerns, you know, much sooner and significantly different from the other two groups, which looked exactly the same. Um, but I'd like to see, I'd like to see the 12 months amenorrhea study. That would yeah. be great. Yeah. And I'm glad actually you looked at all, all of that data uh, as well. So maybe a, another paper to be, yes. uh, be written from, from yes. your database. So yes. uh, Jessica uh, was asking uh, with regards to the trends and you mentioned, you know, well, now we all do it. Uh, so do you have any data on the uptake of opportunistic salpingectomy? Um, do you have any suspicion that this is happening more in academic centers versus a private practice setting? Any, any thoughts with regards to that or by gynecologic oncologist versus general gynecologist? So in BC, it really, the uptake has been remarkable. So we do 80% of hysterectomies with ovarian conservation include, included bilateral salpingectomy by 2017. So um, it, it's likely even higher now, but of course, also we don't recommend that you alter surgical approach to remove both tubes. So um, there's a vaginal hysterectomy, for example, it can be challenging to remove both tubes at the time of vaginal hysterectomy. And so we don't recommend that you change to a laparoscopic approach in order to remove that second tube or, you know, anything like that. So, so I don't think we'll get to a hundred percent, um, for that reason, as well as, you know, some patients 
decline. They don't want it. Um, and we were, we're also doing um, more than three quarters of tubal sterilizations are by opportunistic salpingectomy in BC. So, so really tremendous uptake. And again, that's largely due to Diane Miller, who um, was a really trusted leader in the province. So when she started asking gynecologists to remove tubes, they they did it because they really trusted that she um, that if she was telling them to do something, it was probably the right thing to do. And so, you know, it uh, uptake in BC has been really remarkable. So I don't think there's um, inequity in terms of, you know, academic centers or anything like that, because really it's it's just there's so many being done that they're being done by most uh, gynecologists. Now, in other places, I think that 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 there could be uh, more inequitable uptake. Great. I mean, I, I think it's very encouraging to to hear that and the impact that it's had on the on the trends. And I'll just clarify for our international listeners, when you say BC is British Columbia. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> British okay. Columbia, which is the most Western province of Canada. Perfect. Um, so this next question comes from Hussein again, and it's kind of a long question, but uh, he asked, given the small number of BRCA mutations in the study and the absence of data on other mutations leading to a high risk of breast and ovarian cancer at earlier age and the short time of follow-up, is it possible to elaborate more on how the authors take that into account to conclude that opportunistic salpingectomy should be recommended in the general population? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think I've tried to be really clear because I've certainly learned over the years talking about opportunistic salpingectomy that this is not recommended for patients who have BRCA mutations. Um, recommended prevention in that population is still risk-reducing bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. So ovaries are removed um, before the age of natural menopause. So between 35 and 45, depending on whether it's a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, um, once that person no longer desires any future pregnancies, that is still recommended prevention in that population. And we are not altering those recommendations at this time. Um, there's some BRCA patients who will choose to remove their tubes first so that they can delay that oophorectomy by a, by a few years. Um, but that is only for patients, they are counseled to undergo our RBSO. And if they are unwilling, then you know we might suggest a salpingectomy followed by a delayed oophorectomy just in order to um, try to provide the most risk reduction that we can that that patient is comfortable with. Um, but as mentioned earlier, the BRCA patients in BC largely undergo our RBSO um, during the recommended time intervals. Um, so we're not suggesting opportunistic salpingectomy for that group of patients. It really is designed for the 80% of high-grade serous cancers that arise in people with no known genetically increased risk for ovarian cancer. So, you know, if we want to change the incidence of ovarian cancer, of course, we absolutely want to prevent cancers in every person at genetically increased risk for ovarian cancer. 
But if we really want to reduce incidence, we can't ignore the people who have no known genetically increased risk. And that's what opportunistic salpingectomy is designed to do, is provide prevention to that population. Perfect. Um, Jillian, what would you say are some of the limitations of the study? What would you highlight to our audience with regards to some of the limitations? I mean, I think we've probably talked quite a bit about them already. You know, the... <laughs> The short follow-up, the young age, um, the relatively small population that we're dealing with. So, you know, BC has about 5 million people in it. Um, so, you know, I think that um, those are really the main, the main issues. And we're, we're certainly planning to overcome that by um, continuing to follow um, as well as um, work with another province of Canada where the population is, um, I think, 14 million rather than five. So that will help uh, with both of those, both of those limitations. Well, all of those limitations, really. Yeah. So now as uh, we move forward with regards to practice, um, this question comes from Christina Ewing, uh, one of our fellows from the UK, and she asks, do you think that opportunistic salpingectomy should be the standard of care for those women seeking sterilization? So I know it's much harder, you know, uptake at the time of hysterectomy seems really easy for everyone. Uptake at the time of sterilization has been much a much harder sell, I think. Um, and, you know, we hear often concerns around regret, concerns around um, age of onset of menopause. You know, these are much younger women. Um, so, and then of course, there's also concerns around doing this at the time of cesarean section, because that is commonly when um, a patient is getting tubal sterilization. Um, and so I think, you know, we've been able to address some of those concerns. So there's, there's a lot of safety evidence that doing this at the time of cesarean section is safe. You are not going to increase the risk of a bleed. You know, there's no perioperative adverse events. You know, there's a, there's good safety data for that. Um, the regret issue is really challenging. We don't really have any data on that, but, you know, I often say that tubal ligations are not very easily reversed either. And so unfortunately, if somebody, um, you know, decides that they do want a future pregnancy, the most common, I mean, the way that that commonly happens in people who've had any form of tubal sterilization is through IVF. Um, and, um, and then the other concern around onset of menopause, you know, the data really are reassuring. We don't have any indication that we are decreasing the age of, of onset of menopause. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I am I'm hoping that we're going to see more, more uh, reassuring evidence in that area. Um, so I don't, I think it should be, I think that people seeking tubal sterilization should be have the conversation. This should be included as part of that conversation. Um, so now, particularly now that there is some evidence that this could prevent um, risk for high-grade serous cancer in the future, you know, I would like this to become part of the general contraceptive conversation that is, you know, usually being had in a GP's office or a family doc's office. So, you know, we've started to do some work with family practitioners here in the province, just to say that, you know, 
they do the most of contraceptive counseling just to say that this should be included in that conversation. And then people can make the decision that's right for them. Um, but you know, I'd like patients to get this information. So if a patient has a family history of ovarian cancer, um, they might be more inclined to, to choose salpingectomy for their, um, sterilization choice. Um, versus vasectomy or IUD or something like that. Yeah, really very important point, extremely well, well said and articulated. And I think it's really relevant that, you know, patients should bring this up with, with their physicians. So Jillian, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, one last question. Um, what do you see as the next areas of research in this field? Well, so we actually right now are, as I mentioned, if we want to change the incidence of ovarian cancer, if we really want to bend that incidence curve, then we need to reach as many people as possible. And um, there's no reason that fallopian tubes can only be removed at hysterectomy or tubal sterilization. Um, so we're currently recruiting for a trial to perform opportunistic salpingectomy at the time of colorectal surgery. Um, we're working with our general surgeon colleagues to, um, to expand the opportunities um, in which one might get opportunistic self-injectomy. Um, and yeah, and then I think also um, we're, be we're beginning to consider whether we're just starting to do some research on um, whether or not offering risk-reducing salpingectomy to people who are at a higher lifetime risk, despite not being at genetically increased risk mm -hmm. of ovarian cancer might make sense. But that's, you know, we're very early days in that work. Well, fantastic, Jillian, thank you so much. Uh, it's thank really you. been a pleasure. Congratulations to you and, and your team. Really fantastic work in, in, in this, you know, certainly studies like this, uh, exemplify uh, the, 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 the great research that is being done to implement practice to save lives. So uh, congratulations to you, Jillian Henley from the University of British Columbia, Department of uh, Gynecologic Oncology. So thank you once again. Thank you so much.